Welcome to Wine Thieves. I'm your co-host, Sarah Tomato. And I'm John Sabo. This is the podcast where we go behind the label and meet the people and help tell the stories of iconic wine-growing regions and lesser-known terroir. And drink lots of good wine. Welcome back to Wine Thieves. Way back in episode 41, entitled Armenia, Stepping Back Through Time, we introduced listeners to this fascinating country with 6,100 years, at least, of winemaking history. Armenia is the site of the oldest known winemaking facility, the Areni One Cave, discovered in 2007 in the Armenian highlands in the region called Vyatzor. More on that in a moment. We spoke to the head of the Vine and Wine Foundation to delve into the topsy-turvy history of this country, beginning from that Bronze Age era of winemaking in this historic world. And we encourage you to have a listen, if you haven't already, to learn some of the fascinating historical details and to understand why Armenia is more closely associated with brandy rather than wine. Also changing. Today we take another close look at Armenia, this time focusing on the very recent renaissance of that 6,000-plus-year-old wine-growing history. So despite that very long history, the modern Armenian wine industry is barely a decade old now. But the country's moving fast and at a feverish pace to reestablish its winemaking heritage and has attracted the interest of rock star flying winemakers, as they're known, like Michel Roland and Paul Hobbs. So today we'll be speaking with two of the wine industry's leading protagonists of the rebirth of Armenian wine, Juliana del Aguilar Ernikan, president of Karas Wine, and Vahi Kushkurian, the man behind Wineworks in Yerevan, an important wine incubator also, a nursery man dedicated to rediscovering Armenia's rich heritage of indigenous vines and a producer of three wine brands himself. We'll also start to examine the various wine-growing regions of Armenia, seven of them, all still unofficial for the time being, in a country that has, I have to say, shocking diversity within such a small geographic area. I mean, you can drive across the country in about two hours by car, so it's really quite a small country, but vastly diverse, as we'll learn. We'll hear from our guests about a handful of the most promising local grape varieties out of the 200-plus known to exist, those that have the greatest potential to firmly establish the country on the world wine map. There will be more on the wealth of indigenous varieties in an upcoming episode. But for now, let's get to the introductions of our guests. At the Thieves' Roundtable today are Vahe Kushkarian. Now, while still working on projects in California, Chianti, and later Puglia, Vahe tentatively bought some land in Armenia after his first visit back to the country in 1997. Here he planted Armenia's first new vineyards in the post-Soviet era and created a nursery to grow and study indigenous vine varieties. Now, it took a dozen years to produce his own wine, though he consulted in the meantime on some other startup projects in the region. Today, his Yerevan-based winery, Wineworks, functions as a playground for his own production, but more importantly, as a winery incubator. This is a custom crush facility with about a dozen clients. In addition to winemaking services, Kushkarian also offers viticulture services as well as strategic winery and marketing management support, all with the aim of fulfilling the company's mission statement, which is to work with both farmers and producers so that together we can contribute to the growth of our nation's wine industry. A worthwhile mission, I would say, wouldn't you, Sarah? 
Hard to argue with that. <laughs> right. Also at the table today, as mentioned, is Juliana del Aguilar Ernequian, grandniece of Argentine-Armenian billionaire Eduardo Ernequian, whose great-grandparents fled the Ottoman Empire in the early 20th century in what is now widely recognized as a period of Armenian genocide. Not any more on that later. Ernekian, who owns several Armenian banks as well as the airport in Yerevan, bought land in 2004 in the Armavir region, located between Mount Ararat and Mount Aragats, to invest in the fledgling Republic of Armenia and to create jobs, essentially. After two years of taming the basalt-rich volcanic soils of the area... And Sarah, I can assure you, this is one hell of a stony place. I mean, it was just littered with rocks. When I visited, I saw the piles of basalt. But he managed to clear it and plant nearly 400 hectares of vines, starting with brandy varieties like Uni Blanc and Faux Blanche, Georgian Arcazzatelli, and the Soviet-era crossing called Kangun, which is a Chardonnay Arcazzatelli crossing. And the aim was to supply grapes for brandy production. But more importantly, there was also a goal to produce quality wine. So they trialed plenty of non-local varieties, such as Syrah, Malbec, Cabernet Franc, Petit Verdot, Tanat, along with some sensible oddities, I think, like Montepulciano and Marzemino from Italy. And today, more than half of total acreage is dedicated to wine production. And there's been a shift to plant, I'm happy to report, local varieties as their qualities become better understood. Consultant Michel Roland was engaged in the company, officially Tierras de Armenia, but trading under the brand name Caras was born. Interestingly enough, Ernequian later went from the beginning of the wine world in Armenia to the end of it, quite literally, in Patagonia, where the family established Bodegas Fin del Mundo in the deep south of Argentina. Julian is president of both companies and spends her time traveling back and forth. But we caught up with her one very early morning in California, while Vahe joins us from Yerevan. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. And my name is Juliana Delaila Armekian. I'm president of Caras Wines in Armenia and also of Fin del Mundo in Patagonia, Argentina. So I'm leading these both companies, uh, representing my family, uh, my great uncle who started this this journey in Armenia and then went to Patagonia to continue his his journey in in the wine industry. So I'm really proud of, of to be here and really happy to share this story with you. I'm Vahe Keshkeria, uh, and I have um, a winery operation called Wineworks. Uh, and I do pretty much vertical from nursery to winemaking. Uh, I also do winery incubation service for winemakers or vineyard owners that want to make wine. Uh, I do a contract or uh, I do custom crush. I have a custom crush facility. So I incubate around 12 projects, uh, wine projects in Armenia. Uh, in addition to a sparkling wine that I make, Kirsch, Method Traditionnel, Zural, which is another Armenian project, uh, Armenian indigenous varieties, and Oshin. So I have three labels or three brands that are mine, and I've been, make, I've been in the wine industry for 30 years, give or take, from California to Tuscany to Puglia, and the last 11, 12 years in Armenia. So 
Yeah, that's so my so daily, daily work, yes. Well, perfect. Uh, thank you. So, Bahe, actually, let's start with you, since, of course, you're, you're not new to wine. You did have these projects, California, Tuscany, and Puglia, as you mentioned. But wine was pretty new to Armenia when you landed there in, in 1997 and, and planted some vines for the first time in the post-Soviet era. So take us back to that moment in time and, and tell us what you found when you arrived in Armenia. What sparked your interest to return and kind of kickstart an industry that had all but disappeared at that point? Yes, 97 was my first trip. Uh, and it was not wine-related, honestly. I just came with a friend to to visit Armenia, and somehow somebody figured out that I was in the wine business, and I just moved to Tuscany in 94. So I'd been in uh, 94, and my first vintage was 96. So a year after I came here. So I was quite new. I was a wine merchant, but I was not a wine producer. So when I came to Armenia, I was introduced to a couple of people who were winemakers, and honestly, nothing was happening. There were no vineyards being planted, nothing. And and it is then that somebody whispered or I discovered that this is where it all started, which I wasn't, honestly, I didn't know. You know, we just, I'd been in one business, but we had never, it never occurred to me that Armenia was uh, an important uh, part of the winemaking world. So since then, and, you know, automatically, it kicked in me that this challenge, oh, wow, we may making it and so on and so forth. And there was a lot of land available. Honestly, you could lease land, you could do a lot of things. So I started with 50 hectares in, I got the land in 98 and then I planted in 99. So 99, 2000, 2001, I planted 20 hectares and the 30 hectares I didn't plant. And that's how I started. So I used to go back and forth once a year, uh, twice a year, planting vineyards, doing my thing, but no wine production then. It was growing. And and Juliana? Uh, not, not, it was very, there was not much happening. Uh, some old vineyards from Soviet era, you know, kind of hand left over from that period, yeah. Right. And and Juliana, you mentioned just before we got started here that um, your family established themselves in Armenia before moving on to Argentina. And what was the reason for their interest in Armenia? Well, uh, my great uncle Eduardo, uh, since Armenia declared its independence, he started to travel to Armenia and try to collaborate in its rebirth now in its um, reconstruction. Uh, he was already in the in the airport business. So he started by well he got the the concession to build a new airport. So he started uh, from there and then and then he thought well I need to to build something to to create something that that gives a lot of quality jobs also that it's long term and coming from Argentina he thought about a project that related to agriculture. He's, he had always been a, a wine lover, but at the time, say, nobody was talking about wine at that time. And actually, Bae was a, a key part of Cara's uh, starting point as he and my uncle started this project together. Uh, Bae was our consultant and he was a, a great part of, of the beginning of Cara's. And so... He he bought this land. He he was in love of this place. He remembered 
the stories that he was told in at school about Mount Ararat and about Noah that he planted the first vine in in Armenia. So he he started planting. He planted 200 hectares of of grapes, and and the first wine was made in a in a Soviet uh, winery that we rented to to make it in the year 2010. And as the wine was really good, and we made another batch in 2011, and then in 2012 the winery was was built where we made our first wine in our own winery, and. As Vahe was saying, like nobody was really talking about wine. Like it was Vahe and my uncle and maybe some <laughs> other other crazy people, but that was it. And there was a, a big coincidence that it's it's funny, but in 2007 the Arenike was discovered, and that was a huge deal because it really pushed the industry that was starting to happen and that was starting to grow. And that big discovery as the like the biggest and the most ancient wine facility of the world found in Armenia was like the the push that Armenian producers needed at that time. So yeah, he he fell in love of this place and of, of Armenia and his main goal was always to to create quality jobs and also to create a product that could be taken outside of Armenia and and have the possibility of talking to Armenia, you know, like create bridges between Armenia and the world through the wine. And uh, Vai, the grapes now that you plant, um, can you tell us about some of the your your first plantings and also about some of the indigenous varieties that you currently grow at your nursery? Yes. So uh, roughly there were uh, quite a bit of Armenian indigenous varieties. A few of them were known to farmers. They knew this was Garantamag and that was Hoskehar. And a few RNA, of course, they knew they could tell the difference. But a lot of them, they weren't very well informed. And most of them also got distilled. So nobody got into it. So fine wine wasn't until 2010. And, uh, let's put it there. Mm. Going back until 2010, it was pretty much only RNA as a wine. And Arani was so ubiquitous that it became the brand also. So people would order a bottle of Arani. Right. It's like ordering a bottle of Chardonnay. But because there was only one producer, Vedialgo, that was, it became a brand. Somewhere around 2013, we started looking into what, what else do we have. And we started identifying them either through vineyards, through farmers, through researchers, some university winemakers. And now we, uh, you know, pretty much there are around, uh, no one has an exact figure, but uh, anywhere uh, upwards of 200, 250 different Armenian indigenous varieties. 55, oh. are the, 55 of these varieties are DNA tested. So we know exactly how are they correlated, which varieties are related to the others. So there's a wheel that we know these are DNA tested, of which in my nursery we have around 20, 24, around 24 different varieties that we propagate. Uh, and we make wine, we have made wine probably around 12 different varieties, small batches, some of them. So that's what we do. It's a very long-term work because, uh, you know, you have to make half a ton, one ton, two barrels, and it's right. really hard really hard to do it you know so but oh we, we, we're doing okay you know i mean uh, 
Okay. Yeah, it's a, it's a very long project. Vahe, maybe you could take us through, uh, say, the top top three red or most promising red and white varieties from a winemaker's perspective and what yes. they give in the glass. Uh, the top of the pile is Areni. That will be our flag banner. I think, you know, same way, let's say, in Argentina would be Malbec, just to make a very rough uh, association, you know, New, New Zealand, uh, let's say, Sauvignon Blanc. Uh, Armina is it's one of the older indigenous varieties, Areni. It's a kind of a medium-bodied, more Burgundian in style, if you will, hardly any tannins, a lot of fruit, and beautiful, uh, good aging potential, you know, very nice acidity, natural acidity. That's one of the varieties. Tozo is another variety, more like uh, Grenache. It's very high production grape, so you have to keep it in control. It was done for volume, mostly. Uh, but if you control it, you can make it a really spectacular rosé or very nice red wine. Cajet uh, is another variety, which has a grape with tannins. It grows in the Ararat Valley. But we don't have many good experiments with it, but potentially we think it might be a good variety. Uh, whites, we have really many choices. Somehow whites, because of maybe cognac production, whites were propagated. Boskehat is the best of them. Uh, it lends itself very well to fresh production like stainless steel. It does beautifully in barrel fermentation. Burgundian style a little bit. So then we have Karantamak, we have uh, Khatuni, we have Nazeli, Kangun, uh, yeah, Kangun. There's a few mm. varieties. Most of them are uh, indigenous and old, and some of them, like uh, Kangun or Hachtanak, whatever, are more uh, later year in the 60s or 70s kind of varieties that were crosses between different uh, different varieties. So, uh, honestly, the Gilar is another variety that has a very good potential uh, we're working on. But I would say we have to bet on two. Uh, Arani for Red and Voske had, if we don't put Artsakh. If we include Artsakh, then Khandoni or Sireni yeah, is the third grape, which does very well on clay soil. It has a lot of structure, a lot of color, a lot of tannin. So it, it does really well. There's a uh, has some varieties. So anyway, there's all these varieties yeah. all in the experimental stage. They really had these mosaic vineyards to this day. So they'll be white, then red, then some red, then more white, then eating grapes. So the vineyards were not particularly done, you know, in the Soviet times we're talking, you know. They, they needed more plants. They cut white, they put white. New plantings, now people plant are any pure, let's say selected clone of RNA, five hectares. Then they might put half a hectare of Tozo, half a hectare of Movus. They might put a little cocket for experimentation, so on and so forth. But in those days, it was all mixed up. You don't have to worry about rootstocks. These are all self-rooted. Pretty much all of it is uh, in Vyotzor, in uh, the main valley, let's say. They're all unrooted. Armenia, for the most part, is unrooted. But now, because of the spread of phylloxera in certain areas where clay soil dominates, now it is also allowed to do with rootstock. So new people who are planting new vineyards in the Ararat Valley, Ashtara, Garzashat, have the option of planting with rootstock. But anything old is unrooted. And it is not allowed to plant with 
full start in mm. two regions, Bayotzor and Sunik, which is the region that goes all the way to, to uh, Iran. We'll get to the geography in just a moment because we need to, we need you to lay it out for us. But uh, Juliana, how about from your perspective? Because I know at Caras you planted quite a few different varieties, both indigenous and international. What have been some of the international successes, shall we say, grapes that you would uh, replant in the future? Yeah. Um, well, as as we told before, like when when Caras was planted uh, between two thousand and four and two thousand and seven, we didn't know anything about the. Uh, or not much about the indigenous varieties. As you said also, uh, we started planting grapes for cognac and then we, we moved to varieties more to make wine. And so we planted as like a, an assortment of, of grapes from all around the world. And it was sort of an experiment at that point. And I think Vae can also tell us a little bit about that, that story. Um, but the idea was to, to bring to Armenia, different type types of varieties, and also see how they developed and see what we could make, like which with what variety we could make the best wine, no? And how we could support also the Armenian varieties with grapes from around the world. So I think our our uh, star in the in the vineyard is the Syrah for sure. Mm. If I'm not talking about the Armenian varieties, no, we have great Areni, great Sireni also, and and Cancun for the whites in our region is quite good uh, and we really like it and our style of wine is also quite uh, it's it's different because we we make mainly blends and our reds for example are mostly blends of Syrah and Cabernet Sauvignon or uh, also we, we we have Cancun and Chardonnay for example so our idea was to make wines really appealing for the international palate no, at first and now that we are more comfortable and that we know exactly how our not exactly but that we know in more intimately our our vineyard and how grapes grow in in Armavir uh, we are now uh, ready to show the world like our version of Areni, our version of Cancun. And, and of course, we have our experimental vineyard where we grow different type of grapes, most of them by mention, so I'm not going to bore you with all the names. Um, but we Armenia is so, so heterogeneous, no? So every region has its particularities. And where we are, we are not as high as where Bae was talking about in Areni region. In the in Armavir, we are like around 1,300 meters above sea level. It's volcanic soil. It's very extreme weather, and the conditions vary a lot in every region of Armenia. So, Areni in in Ararat Valley or in Armavir, it's quite different to the Areni that you can find in Bayotzor, for example. And the same happens with every variety. Well, Liana, given your similarities to climatic similarities, as you just mentioned that remind me very much of Mendoza, um, the higher it's elevation. Not, it's not actually. Um, uh, I mean, Mendoza, Mendoza, it's very like, it's very high in the mountains, cold, cold weather, dry weather, but it's not as extreme as, as Armenia. Like in Mendoza, you sometimes, sometimes in, in the winter, you have some snow, but it's not very hard. In, in Armavir, we can get up to minus 30 uh, degrees Celsius no, in the winter. And, and, and you wow. have to bury your vines, if I recall. Yeah, yeah. when, when they're really young, now, now we don't. Like, 
luckily they're strong enough to to survive the winter if it's too hard but at the, the first years we had to and that's that's very particular like the weather is really extreme the conditions are really extreme so because so are you growing any malbec <laughs> that was my question but given that it's much more yes we are and we we grow malbec we grow pinot noir for example that we also grow in patagonia and it's funny because it's really different like it's really it has nothing to do with the malbec that we can make in argentina i mean but it's good it has its character i think uh, it's important also to to understand that it's not only about the type of grape, like the name of the grape, but it's also about the place where it's grow, where, where it grows now. So it, that gives a, a huge uh, character to it. All right. So for somebody who's never been to Armenia, doesn't really know the regions, Vahe, can you take us through just a quick little snapshot of the main growing areas and some of the differences or similarities in climate? Sure. Um, there are seven growing regions. Two of them, Artsakh and Tavush, which is the northern region that Artsakh is towards Azerbaijan, let's say, uh, or the eastern side of Armenia, the enclave, north of Iran, and Tavush, which is by the Georgian border, are two regions that are relatively milder. They happen to be also clay, and they also happen to have phylloxera. So, of course, you know, Whatever there's clay soil, phylloxera can multiply very fast and so on. So those, those two regions are also relatively lower elevation, around 650, 700, 750. So there are no vineyards that are a thousand meters there. The grapes won't mature, it's too high. So these have a little bit of commonalities between these two regions. And then that leaves us with five regions. Uh, two are pre-mountainous. One is where Garas is, uh, Armavir region and Ashtarak region. Those are in between two mountain ranges in Armenia. Uh, so those, we call them the pre-mountainous range. Then we have the Ararat Valley, which is really hot, almost too hot for fine wine. So a lot of it is done for grapes for distillation, cognac, or fortified wine. Uh, there are some exceptions, a couple of grapes make it there, otherwise it's too hot. There's a region called Sunik region, and that's by the Iranian border, and nothing is happening there. I mean, they grow grapes, it's all distilled for local brandy or something, you know, so there's no wine action there, but there are at least 20 indigenous varieties uh, at that, that area. And the last one, is Vyotsul, which is the main growing region, if you will, of fine wine, let's say. Because it's very similar to either Burgundy or Piemonte, is the sense that there is uh, around 12 different villages that range from 950 meters for Areni village to Khachik, which is around 1,800 meters. So in between, you have all this Chiva, Yeltsin, and so on and so forth. These are all different villages, pretty much all of them southern exposure. So that makes it very interesting, and that's where Arani is pretty much everywhere, you know. But there the land is very rare. There's not enough land. It's gorgeous with some flat land, so there's not that much land for potentially. So it's called, it might be end up being the tourist region. So there is pretty much on-rooted in most of the regions, except the two I mentioned, and some, like Echmiadzi in Armavir area, now 
there is uh, also they're using grafted plants for New Guinea. So basically, yes, seven regions, totaling around 17,500 hectares, give or take. And Vyadzor, we understand, we had a previous episode, we spoke to uh, Zara from the Fine and Wine Foundation, yes. is planned to be the first uh, official appellation. Can you tell well, us how, how far along we are be. with that? It should be, I think. Yeah, it should be because it lands itself. If we want to do an appellation, we have to start there. Uh, one is because it's first village. There's the region, one region which is with mountain ranges around it, so it's kind of unique and isolated. Plus, there's all the villages, so it will have sub-appellation, like Volne or Chassain, or, you know, so you have the basic villages. And then within the villages, over time, in the next 25, 30, and some years, we will know this parcel and that parcel make a better wine. So slowly we will have below the village appellation. So it kind of lends itself to the appellation system. And it's a good place to start to learn. Is the volcanic rock from Vyatsor, is that pervasive? Do you find this type of soil throughout Armenia or is it specific to Vyatsor? No, not at all. Uh, it's also in uh, with where, Garasi, where that's we are, yeah. soil. Yeah. It's basalt and tuff and it's all volcanic. I mean, pretty much all of Armenia is volcanic soil uh, with clay exceptions in Hmianzin, Tavush, which is by the Georgian border, and Artsakh. They have a very heavy uh, clay. On the bottom is still rock, uh, but for the rest, Ashtarak, Armavir, Sunni, Vyotor is mostly stone, basalt, tufa. You know, to have the soft stone, right. you know, yeah. we use for construction also and play limestone. So, so both of you predate the discovery of the Areni One cave. So you were there when the discovery was made. What was that like for you? What was that like for the industry? Was that just like an injection of energy when you had this terrific story to tell? Juliana, what, what went through your mind when you first learned about that? Yeah, well... Um, with Caraz, it, it's crazy because also the, the name of the winery and the brand is is a word that it's quite important and that relates intimately with the discovery. You know? So when we named the, the winery, nobody really spoke about Caraz or what a Caraz was. And and when the discovery was made, uh, then it, it got like great relevance, no? Uh, not only the brand, but also this ancient technology that was used in Armenia. So I think it was a great boost. And also it gave Armenia a lot of, of credibility. Like there's something going on there that it's not new. It's not something that we are now uh, inventing, but it's something that we are being a part of its rebirth and that we have the responsibility of, of doing it right you now for our ancestors. Ahe? Yes. Uh, let me add to that a little bit. The oldest artifacts or vessels there, the amphora, date 6,100 years. Okay, so this is more like systematic winemaking 6,100 years ago. So this has been a bone of contention between Armenia and Georgia. Georgians claim they have evidence of winemaking for 8,000 years, which is fine. I mean, there's no argument there. The thing is that any nation that was systematically making wine for 6,000 years didn't start making wine 50 years before that. It took another three or 4,000 years to get there because you don't go from spontaneous winemaking in a cave or in someone's cave for the most part 
leftover grapes that became wine to systematic small amphora, big amphora, racking, whatever. Right. It's not for two, three thousand. So basically, that puts us in the middle of the epicenter of winemaking. Whether Georgians like it, whether we like it, but it could be that it's Iran. The problem is that, for example, I went to Iran, Hajifiru Stepe, and after the, the revolution, the whole site has been closed. Mm-hmm. So if they dig there, it could be that their winemaking is even older than Armenia. So regardless, it is the, the foothill of Mount Ararat is where it all started. We lay claim to the oldest winery, if you will, in a cave. So, and we stick with that. It's fine. Uh, what it does is that for 7,000 years, farmers propagated all these varieties. So now we have two, 300 varieties that over time came to us and they propagated the ones that did well. They didn't propagate the ones that didn't do well because they did well for the dry climate, for acidity. You know, if Armenians were taking wine to Babylon, 1000 BC, as Herodotus claims, the reason they were able to do it because the wines had natural acidity to withstand that journey between Armenia and Babylon. You know, if you don't have acidity, Arrivederci Roma, after right. 10 minutes, the wine is spoiled. You know, you can't, that's the natural thing. So if that is it, so it means the, the terroir of Armenia lent itself. And that's why the Armenian wine was prized enough that people put it on a boat with the donkey and went to Babylon to sell the wine, you know. So that's historically how it is, how or how it was. That shows that the terroir, it developed in uh, Armenia, everything developed for a good reason, because the terroir was there. We'll call it the ancient wine world, as you yeah, actually call, call it. it historic, I remember. We call it the historic <laughs> wine world, actually. You know. The historic wine world. Okay. Historic wine world, because we're still alive and kicking, you know. Actually, uh, Greece is part of the historic world, just for the history. It's not part of the Western world. From Greece all the way to Iran, Palestine, Israel, mm. Lebanon, Egypt, uh, Iran, Turkey, or Western, let's say, Anatolia, Georgia, are part of the historic wine world. They I like that thought. That. Yeah, they all have that, a sh- they all have a share a few things from terroir to indigenous varieties and whatever, because uh, it means that it's older than Western Europe. Right, it's a much better distinction than old world or lumping all of Europe into these categories in Israel. I mean, it, it the historic makes more sense. It's also, you know, not as colonial sounding of a word, but um, (laughs) so that's interesting. You know, I you mentioned, Uliana, uh, the Karas and that traditional production method was that idea of using the Karas kind of revitalized by the discovery of uh, Areni one. Um, And I understand it's it's not a production method you use for all of your wines, but for some of your wines still. Is this a traditional method of vinification that benefits Areni in particular? I think so. Um, the thing is that uh, when, for example, in our experience at least, there's so many different caras, no? Like so many different shapes, so many different oh, ways okay. of using it, so many different uh, textures and materials. Like it's mo- mostly clay or two for, but like it's so delicate and so um, 
particular to every time we make wine, no? So it's really, it's not easy to standardize the use of caras. So it's really artisanal and, and you, have, you have to really connect with that way of winemaking. So I think that in, for example, for areni, it's really good, especially for fermentation. We don't, we don't really age the areni in this type of vessels. Uh, but for fermenting, it's really good. Like it takes out the fruit and, and, and there's a, a texture also that comes with it that it's really interesting. And, and also for the whites, for example, for Cancun, we found that it's, it was quite good and, and for Sireni, but we use it mostly for fermenting. We don't use it to age, but that's our way of approaching it. Uh, I'm sure there's there's a lot of different ways of using this type of technology. Um, but I think for sure that it's it's an important element of our way of winemaking in, in Armenia and in Caraz. It's it's something that we, we are uh, always like continue trying to discover new ways or, or, or trying to understand what's the best way of, of using this tool now and recovering it. It's an exciting time. I mean, really, literally rediscovering and, and forging a new path. I'm wondering, Vahe, from your technical perspective, yes. uh, how, how useful is the Karasi method? Is that something that you employ? Uh, look, we don't have any experience. Honestly, I don't have experience. Uh, uh, and we don't have a controlled way of experimenting. In the new winery that we're building, we will experiment with the same grape, you know, for our wood. Uh, cement, stainless yeah, steel, so that we can we can relatively figure out that okay, this uh, there aren't uh, there are maybe one, two, three, four wineries uh, that are reasonably using caras in reasonable quantities as opposed to small quantities, but we really don't know. Two, one of them definitely they do. Uh, winemaking, maceration, more like the Georgian style. They leave it there. You know, Trinity does that. And they make an orange wine, serious orange wine. The red wine they also do. But a uh, few of them, uh, other ones, I mean, look, uh, the reason that Garas was uh, in the historic winemaking concept is because the Amphora were underground. And underground, you had a constant temperature. So technically, a thousand or two thousand or five thousand years ago, you made wine with temperature control because the wine fermented, but it didn't overheat because the soil exchanged the thing. But that came at a price because you couldn't clean the amphora. So you had bacterial growth, you had this, you had that. So a lot of the wines that are fermented in amphora, aged in amphora, have a lot of fun. Yeah. It is really hard to clean them, you know. So now what they're doing, Italians and others, are making amphora vessels with stainless steel loops that you can clean. So basically they're getting the best of both worlds, where you have micro-oxygenation through the amphora, but you can also clean it, hygiene it. You know. So, you know, it's not unlike cement tanks, honestly. Which yeah. uh, the, So more or less, more or less the same, some of the new amphora Italian Manufacturers having uh, plates in it, temperature control. So it's basically veering off from, from what Amphora meant. In Georgia, still they do it. A lot of them do it. Now, do I am not a huge fan personally of those wines. Honestly, I think it's a curiosity. It's fine. Mm -hmm. uh, taking maybe, see, without taking out of context, taking a lot of Lucazitelli grapes that are very average, throwing it in an Amphora comes up with a very different wine. 
which if you made in a stainless steel would probably be a boring wine, you know. But will any winemaker or wine writer or anybody say, oh, let's go to Burgundy and take these Batar grapes and throw them in an amphora? It would be sacrilege. <laughs> no one yes. would do it. I mean, even the amphora maker wouldn't do it. <laughs> Why would you do it? You know, sorry. Yeah, the I notion wouldn't of making do wine it. like it's 3000 <laughs> BC is, is certainly very romantic. I but understand, but what's the speaking, point? It's not, uh, it's not. <laughs> yeah, so to they did it at the time. You know, we didn't have refrigeration, we didn't have many things, you know. So we have to be very careful to use amphora. If there is micro-oxygenation, yes. If the shape of the amphora lends itself to fermentation and, mm-hmm. and sediment movement or whatever, I'm all for it, as long as scientifically there is a logic behind it, you know. And if we can keep them clean, wonderful. But that much funk... That's the most important part, to keep it clean. And that's the yes, challenge, it's, I think. But it's difficult, very difficult, it's you know. It's very difficult. Yeah, you know, it's a porous material, <laughs> and within porous material, bacterial growth is, a, you know, it's the same like a barrel that was camped very badly, and you put good wine in it. It doesn't take long to spoil the wine because of the, all the bad bacteria and whatever. So I am very cautious. Let's put it that way. I have not closed the book on it. I will experiment with it, but I'm not jumping on the bandwagon and saying, oh, we make Amphora also. I'm past it. I've been doing this for 30 years. The last thing I want to do is try a marketing thing for for me personally. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Given all this experimentation and research development uh, into reestablishing grape varieties, uh, et cetera, what kind of um, government, if any, initiatives are there? Are there any funds to to help this revitalization project, or is it mainly a model that's based on private funds? Uh, let me see. So there isn't particular funding. FAO funded one. FAO being the food, uh, the, the UN for the food organization, they funded and they collected a lot of varieties and made an experimental field in. HBMZ, I think. Uh, it's relatively okay, not particularly well kept. But the ones who are really doing the work are two geneticists. One of them is Christina Markarian, who really has a sweet deal with the German university. And they allow her to do every year 500 DNA sequencing. So she gets all the material and then they, she will say, no, that's not, this is that great, this is, you're wrong, this is a clone, or this is this, this is that. But it's a private lab. It's not state-funded, it's not, the government doesn't have it. We have the foundation, the Wine and Wine Foundation, but it's more marketing-oriented. Right. New markets. Yeah. Uh, the bigger problem is the following, that I, as a nursery, I go through these lengths, to bring the grapes, do virus testing so that it's clean material. And then I don't know what to do with it. No one buys it because no one has an idea and no one has time to experiment. Garas might be an exception because they're yeah. different. They have a different funding. They think very long term. 
they say, okay, let's expand it with 10 varieties, they plant the vineyards, and they don't need to make money the next year. They can hold on five years, six years, eight years until they see the results. But so other, sure that. <laughs> yeah, the, all the other winemakers won't be able to do it. And they are like, do they really want to do Nazali? It's like, no, they want to make wine today, sell it tomorrow. So this experimentation and stuff is a long term, it's a private thing, honestly. Now, for example, people come to my winery and say, Gila. So they taste Gila, they might like it, Tozo, they might like it. And like for now, we have a new variety, not a new variety, it's an old variety that we made wine called Garmil Goteni. It means red stem grape, red stem. It is spectacular. So now people that are planting, they taste the wine, they say, okay, one hectare, I'm going to plant this one. So can you give me plants? So yeah, okay, plants, $2,000 here, $2,000. You know, but we do it because we are excited. We love it. And we don't want to see whole of Armenian winemaking into two varieties. After 7,000 years, 300 varieties going to two varieties, it's not fair. It shouldn't be. The problem, yeah, we have difficult names to pronounce. We have word hers and zers and everything <laughs> in those names, you know. RNA is an easy one. You know, Sidene is a relatively easy one. But we have some really jawbreakers, you know, as names and whatnot. <laughs> So we would like, I think it would be wonderful if we can, you know, at least give the wine drinking public, sommeliers, writers, or wine lovers some possibility to taste, um, you know. I just came from Greece and, you know, I tasted so many agioriticos. It's absolutely wonderful. You think you're in Piemonte. It's all like Nebbiolo style, mm-hmm. different styles, but it's, it's a Greek grape, end of story. Yeah, you can't pronounce the damn thing, but after five times you can <laughs> it, yeah. <laughs> we, we know the world is thirsting certainly amongst the trade for these uh, specialty varieties indigenous varieties unique singular flavor profiles that you don't find in every corner of the planet so in, in that perspective i would say the future of armenia is quite bright yes provided you can get these wines into the right uh, hands or into the right mouths and uh, and those mouths can also pronounce the grape because uh, sadly that's that's an issue right yes, yes it is yeah uh, I think we're able to get it now. There's a little bit of a buzz. We have wine writers. There's going to be a movie out, Som TV, as a Som 4. It's a, it's a Cup of Salvation, it's called. It was going to be released, but COVID came, so they're going to release it this year. It's a Som TV. And that, that should put another notch in Armenian winemaking efforts. And then we have a lot of masters of wine being interested because now they're discovering. So the, the direction is correct. It's right. In the next 10, 15 years, we will see very good things. And the wines, we will go from average today to above average to some very good wines. In 10, 15 years, some world-class great wines. And Juliana, what do you think that the future holds for Armenia in terms of growth and development of the industry? Do you see a boom in the future? For sure. I think that also when you have the opportunity to travel to talk to people from the industry or outside the industry, like like we do, like I my feeling is that there's so much interest and the, the story is so so rich, no, and the wines are so good. So of course, there are a lot of things to to improve, like in every every country, and 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 the wines are are still young in a way, no? Because we have a, a very a very ancestral story, but at the same time, it's a baby. <laughs> 
So I think that we are doing the right things. We are at least, I, I'm sure the two of us, we are we are really working for Armenia and for the industry to grow in the right direction, as Vahe said. And the results are already starting to, to be seen, no? Like Armenia is already starting to be an important site in the wine map of the world. And also it's getting different, like we are... Uh, being able to differentiate Armenia from other historic uh, places of the world. And that's important from our varieties, from our style, from our story, our food. So there are so many elements so so rich to to the Armenian history and to the Armenian wine that I think it's just so attractive that there's no way that it's not going to be a success. It already is. So um, I think it's important that, that as an industry we we have like shared goals no i have the example of argentina like we understood that malbec was a, a key to enter the wine world and now argentina is an important player in the wine industry and i think armenia has the same possibility with with areni and also with with the other um, varieties that are not as well known as areni but have great potential to make amazing wines so uh, Juliana, how uh, how much communication is there between wineries currently? Is it a, a, a collegial industry where everyone sort of helps each other, or is, are people operating in their silos? So I see Bahi smiling there, but Juliana, what's what's your perspective? Well, more or less, I think the wine the wine spirit it's very friendly, no, in every part of the world. So it's not that it's not as different and as in other places, but still, I think we we have a lot to to work on on that sense. Do you have anything to, uh, to, to add to no, that? No, uh, it's just like any other. Well, I, right think, I think uh, uh, the last two or three years it changed a bit. Before, it was two guys comparing their RNAs. Now, pretty much everyone's comparing RNAs to other wines in the world. So, the shift has changed, I think. Because now they're relatively doing better. The wines are selling. They're planting new vineyards. So, they don't look inward saying, oh, my wine is better than my neighbor. They're saying Armenian wines are better. First, we uh, we as winemakers, Armenian winemakers, we have to sell the country first, Armenian winemaking, and then go and say, by the way, we make our wines this way. But Armenia in general makes the wine so that we promote Armenia first, then we promote our wines. Uh, that's the way it should be. And that's the way they do it in Burgundy, they do it in Piemonte, in Champagne, you know. Nobody will speak badly of other other champagne producers, but they will all push so that they get 20, 30 euro for per bottle and, you know, and plant more vineyards every year, you know. So, and their land is costing 1 million a hectare and in other is around $15,000 a hectare, you know. So, we, you know what I'm saying, it's mostly adding value, adding value, adding value, and we're getting there. The last, uh, I think the foundation also helped, honestly. Uh, the foundation brought together a kind of a, an independent player. So everybody is treated equally uh, and uh, more or less they, they do the work, kind of they do, the government is funding it to a little bit and it's, it's, it's much better than it used to be, honestly. Thank you so much um, for taking the time with us today, early and late. <laughs> We're all over the place here. Um, this has been really very enlightening for us, uh, for me in particular. Yeah, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. That was lovely. Thank you very much. Bye.
Bye-bye. Bye. So we reached Juliana del Aguilar Ernequian from California, but president of Caras Wines and Bodegas Fin del Mundo in Patagonia, and Vahe Keshkurian from Wineworks in Yerevan and flag-waving champion for the historic wine world. Wow. Uh, again, so much in that interview, Sarah, so much to, to consider and think about and, and get excited about. I'm particularly excited about 200 or maybe more indigenous varieties, which means a whole world yet to be rediscovered in the realm of quality wine. You know, that's those numbers have got to be close to Greece and Portuguese indigenous varieties. No, John, that number? Well, we know we're in the cradle of vinifera. This is where it all began. This is probably where all of the vinifera in the world originally came from. So it only stands to reason that we're in a hotbed of genetic diversity. And, uh, well, we certainly won't go through them all, but uh, a couple that you'll hear more and more about again, and I think... We'll all be excited to taste more of, starting with Areni, which is the number one protagonist variety, I would say. Most people seem to agree. I find it kind of Pinot Noir-like. I know it's terrible to make analogies like that, but we have to start somewhere. You know, I agree with you in, in terms of what we've been tasting. I mean, the complexity of Pinot Noir, but there's something about Areni that feels like it has a little, just almost a little bit more grit gumption. But yes, I completely agree with that kind of the complex elegance of that wine. Mm -hmm. Beautiful perfume. In my experience, the, the finest ones were aged in wood, but not new wood, old wood, or maybe even amphora. More on that in a second, but let's oh. let's not go straight there. Other varieties to uh, to keep in the back of your mind: Tozot, which Vahe likened to Grenache, and I have had some Tozot straight from barrel, and it does have that ample round palate richness that Grenache mm -hmm. does, and it's, it can be a pretty sturdy one. Yeah, almost that sweetness of fruit, that that ripeness about it, that's just absolutely delicious, jammy, but not without structure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and the rest, well, I mean, we just really don't have enough experience with them, but I've had Cajeti, for example, same name as that region in Georgia, but here a tannic red variety, also showing quite a lot of promise. And the one that Juliana was quite uh, high on is Sireni, also known as Hondogni, but let's go with let's go with Sireni, that's easier to say and to remember. Yes, please. But this is... Uh, this is quite Syrah-like, you know. In fact, they have it growing with Syrah in their vineyard, and there's some similarities in the kind of floral aspect, the deep color, and the and the terrific acid structure. And sometimes that peppery note too that comes to play. So I think those are really great ways to make the comparison. It can be challenging, you know, not knowing these great varieties as a consumer. You do want something at least to compare to. So I think that exercise is worthwhile. Well, on the white side, and you know, Sarah, I'm a huge white wine fan, white wine drinker, and Armenia has a lot of white grapes, but the number one easily is Voskehat that we heard mentioned several times. And this is a a really beautiful variety. I would really hope that a lot more of it is planted. I mean, if I were to compare this to um, better known wines, perhaps I would think of Roussan from the Northern Rhone Valley, 
know, the, a little bit more perfume, finesse, white fruit flavors. I also found it, uh, it's a little bit more of a stretch of an analogy, but uh, to some Duro whites, especially those high elevation, cooler climate, crisper style Duro whites, which are made from a bunch of varieties, but reminiscent distantly of Vosquehat. Yeah, definitely. And I think that these wines can age very nicely and very gracefully. And the, the complex bottle-aged character really contributes a lot as the fruit very gently starts to fade. Um, I think this is a really dynamic white that I'd like to continue tasting more of. Well, in fact, on our next episode, we'll be focusing on Areni and Bosqueat. And with any luck, we'll even have a couple of samples to taste along with our listeners. At least we can describe it for you. But then after that, Garandema, Khatuni, Kangun, the list goes on and on. More varieties to discover. But if you have to remember just one thing about this episode, one region, that would be Vyadzor, the one that everyone claims will be the first official appellation, and I have no reason to doubt that. No, and um, this is an area that clusters about a dozen villages within it, and these elevations are pretty high, and within range quite a bit. So from about 950 meters at any village to up to 1,800 meters, and we were making that comparison a bit with Argentina, given that type of elevation. You know, really extreme conditions here with this big diurnal shifts and very rocky soils, volcanic soils right up your alley, John. And there are these limestone outcroppings as well, which lead to some intriguingly aromatic wines. So, John, I know you've made this argument before, and it was brought up again in this interview, the fact that the varieties that are grown here are perfectly suited to the conditions, and they result in wines that are naturally balanced, that require little winemaking, these indigenous varieties. Well, I have to say, I love that argument for me. It is perfectly logical that over several thousand years, you would have naturally selected grape varieties that led to wine that really didn't need much manipulation in the winery because, honestly, they didn't know what they were doing. It was quite mysterious how grapes fermented magically into wine, and there was obviously no way of adjusting acidity or chapitalization, really no manipulations of any kind. So what would have survived? Well, the varieties that have the, the natural acid uh, profile that in that climate and in that particular soil. So, yeah, I think uh, Vahe makes a great point there, and you can see this in Greece, you can see this in southern Italy, in Portugal, other regions with loads of indigenous varieties. These are, are grapes that, for the most part, you don't need to mess around with in the winery. Now, when you start planting Chardonnay in, in the Armenian highlands, I just don't know how well that would work. And that's important to remember, too, because a lot of these countries that you mentioned have a wealth of indigenous varieties that consumers may not be familiar with. So blending them or planting other varieties that are more familiar sounds like a sound marketing decision. On the other side, too, you know, there are other regions in the world that are also looking at their varieties and due to global warming, um, trying to find those that adapt a little bit better. Who knows? Maybe some of these will be those varieties that end up getting exported. 
And as I said, more on that in our upcoming yep. episode. Vahe mentioned Christina Margarian, who right. will be joining us on our next adventure to Armenia. She's head of research group at the Institute of Molecular Biology and author of The Whole Genome Resequencing of 200 Native Armenian Grape Varieties and Wild Genotypes. So really nobody more specialized in crazy Armenian grapes than Christina. So really looking <laughs> forward to hear what she has to say and linking some of these varieties to perhaps other varieties that we're more familiar with in other parts of the world. But Sarah, how about how about Vahe's take on amphora use or karas use in, in winemaking? Yes. That was a refreshing perspective. Oh, yeah. And I think for a lot of us in the wine industry, it was. And it's important, you know, to rediscover traditional practices. But we do have the ability to make some really stellar wines using new technology, which involves temperature control in the winery. And that's one of the main reasons to use amphora is because it's good temperature control especially when buried underground. But anyway, I think that that was a nice little rebuttal or, or snub to natural winemaking. Come on, Patard Montranger, <laughs> are you going to make an amphora? No, not even the amphora winemakers would do this. No. Why? No, no. <laughs> yeah. Yes, there's something to be said for, for clean and, and precise wines, not to knock the natural wines, because most of the great wines of the world are made pretty naturally, but there are limits, at least in my opinion. And don't forget to check out the latest iteration of the Psalm series on Psalm TV, Psalm 4, Cup of Salvation. We haven't seen it yet because it's not out, but according to the trailer, it dives into what wine truly means to human history and the land we inhabit. And I can only imagine that human history involves Armenian history when we're talking about wine, because really, as we said, that's where it all started. And we'll try to post a link to that promo on one of our social media feeds in the upcoming week. But that's all for this week. So keep tuning in to Wine Thieves for upcoming episodes on Argentina, where we talk to Joaquin Hidalgo, a really fascinating writer from Mendoza, and is going to talk to us about some of the extreme regional differences we can find and why there's more diversity than we think. We'll also be delving in to the Paydoc, talking to some producers who are making wine in one of the largest regions in France, as well as an important series on Napa Valley, in addition to more on Ontario and Armenia to come. Indeed, so much more to come. But thanks as always for listening. I'm your co-host, John Sabo. And I'm Sarah D'Amato. Arajim Ganas Barov. Pretty good, eh, Sarah? So long, farewell in Armenia. So impressive, John. <laughs> <laughs>